Welcome to God for Grownups. I'm Dan Peterson, pastor at Queen Anne Lutheran Church in Seattle. In this episode, we're presenting highlights from one of the most enlightening virtual forums we've held this year. The talk focuses on a turning point in the life of Lutheran pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German who lived from 1906 to 1945. Bonhoeffer is widely known for his resistance to the Nazis and for his writings on Christianity in secular life, including his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship. Lesser known is the impact on Bonhoeffer of his year of study at Union Seminary in New York in 1930-31, during which he worshipped at Harlem's Abyssinian Baptist Church and was deeply influenced by intellectuals of the Harlem Renaissance. Dr. Reggie Williams writes about this subject in his award-winning book, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, Harlem Resistance Theology and an Ethic of Resistance. Dr. Williams is our featured guest for this forum, which Queen Anne Lutheran co-hosted with St. Luke's Lutheran Church in Bellevue, Washington. Here's Pastor Mark Griffith of St. Luke's to introduce Dr. Williams. I'm Pastor Mark Griffith. I'm the pastor at St. Luke's Lutheran Church. Welcome to all of you. It's great to see all of these familiar faces in this forum. Um, Pastor Dan and I are thrilled to be able to partner together and provide this for you. Um, I was first introduced to Dr. Williams' work a few years ago at Pacific Lutheran University when he gave a talk around his book, uh, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, and I was absolutely blown away. Here was a scholar, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that his work was so influential on me that um, even was a part of my story of how I ended up becoming a pastor myself and going to seminary. And I was um, amazed and shocked and a little ashamed that I didn't know that about Bonhoeffer's life. There was, um, it was exciting, exhilarating to hear Dr. Williams' presentation and um, really opened a whole new way of thinking about Bonhoeffer um, and the experience that Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer had in the black church and how his experience with persons of color really transformed him. And I, I was, really grateful to have that presentation and uh, really grateful to hear his work and really excited about that. So that was my personal experience uh, with you in that room and it was uh, really profound for me. So I really appreciate your time at that moment and that you're able to be with us now. Now, just for protocol, here's the, uh, the formal academic introduction. Dr. Williams, and this is just right off the McCormick website, Dr. Williams' research interests include Christological ethics, theological anthropology, Christian social ethics, the Harlem Renaissance, race, politics, and black church life. His current book projects include a religious critique of whiteness in the Harlem Renaissance. In addition, he is working on a book analyzing the reception of Bonhoeffer by liberation activists in apartheid South Africa. Dr. Williams received his PhD in Christian ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary in 2011. He earned a master's degree in theology from Fuller in 2006 and a bachelor's degree in religious studies from Westmont College in 1985. He is a member of the board of directors for the Society of Christian Ethics, as well as the International Dietrich Bonhoeffer Society. He is also a member of the American Academy of Religion and the Society for the Study of Black Religion. Welcome, Dr. Williams. We're really grateful that you're with us and look forward to your presentation. Thank you so much, uh, Pastor Mark and Pastor Dan for your invitation. This was the catalyst for me. How does our understanding of Jesus influence our morality? 
I didn't know how I was going to address that. And then I came across this story. My mentor, um, the man who trained me in Christian ethics, Glenn Stassen, he trained a number of Bonhoeffer scholars. Glenn did. Passed away in 2014, just the year, the year that my book was being published, 78. Um, but for Glenn, the time that Bonhoeffer spent in New York was really a catalyst for this transformation that allowed him to see before anybody else that the Nazis were evil. And the majority of Christians in Germany went right along with Hitler and the Nazis. And in fact, the Nazis would not have gained the power that they did without Christian support. They couldn't have. Yet this 25-year-old genius whippersnapper, uh, wet behind the ears, ruddy, yet somewhat arrogant, young man trained by all of these professors and that he ends up working alongside at the University of Berlin was pushing back against them very early, very radically, thinking that he was going to a concentration camp as early as age 27. Dachau was opened in 1933. So how did he gain this insight? He wasn't the only one, but he was very vocal and he wrote a lot. How did he gain this insight? Glenn said, it's from time spent in a black Baptist church in Harlem. Glenn was extremely Baptist, the most Baptist man I ever met. <laughs> so he's very proud of his, his, Baptist, his Baptist roots. So he says he's Abyssinian Baptist. I taught a, car, a course with him on Bonhoeffer while I was his doctoral student. And I also happened to recognize that he, that that time corresponded with the Harlem Renaissance. I had done a project when I was a master's student and um, uh, in a class on theology and art. And at the end of that class, I studied a painter of the Harlem Renaissance, Aaron Douglas, one of the most prominent artists in the Harlem Renaissance. And come to find out that when Dietrich Bonhoeffer is in New York, it's corresponding with this movement. I'll say more about what this, what the Harlem Renaissance is, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with that movement. But um, it's a hugely important time in Black history happening right there in New York. And artists and intellectuals from the Harlem Renaissance are in and out of Abyssinian Baptist Church where Bonhoeffer is a, is a um, lay leader. The whole, all of that time there is hugely influential. I, um, when I went to comb through stuff that, Don, that Bonhoeffer brought back with him to Germany from New York, I found a lot of this, a lot of information that he kept. A lot of, I mean, paperwork, bibliographies, all of this stuff related to um, struggle for the struggle against white supremacy for black people that were important to him, important enough to keep in his bibliography from the New York branch. So the Harlem branch of the New York library had a coffee stain on it. <laughs> he was, I, I guess he spilled some coffee while he was lingering over this thing, finding out what, ne what's, what to read next. Um, but anyway, what I'm going to share with you now is a little bit of an overview from this text that I wrote and some of the research that I got. It's focusing primarily on Abyssinian Baptist and the Harlem Renaissance through um, one key figure of the Harlem Renaissance, a poet, a young poet named County Cullen, this poem that Bonhoeffer mentions by name. 
So first of all, to know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was one of eight children. There were four boys and four girls. Um, Bonhoeffer was the youngest of the four boys, and he had a twin, his sister Sabine. He was born just a few minutes before before her uh, fraternal twin. Um, they were very wealthy. They were um, a an academic family. Dad was in charge of the Charité Hospital, which was a psych psychiatric hospital uh, so connected to the University of Berlin in Berlin. They had servants um, and the kids were um, the older, let's see, the older five were homeschooled and the younger three, they had a homeschooling interrupted when mom sent them to school by, when they moved into a, a neighborhood in Berlin that was associated with a lot of other different professors from the University of Berlin. Um, and Bonhoeffer's family were not church going. Uh, in fact, mom was the only one who had leanings, who was, who was Christian. She did Bible study with the family, with the children at home. Dad was, um, agnostic. The other brothers were not Christians. Um, and neither were the sisters. So it was an, it's a very unusual thing for a, theologian, especially of this nature, this stature, to come from a family that wasn't church-going. But everybody was baptized in church because that's just what you do. It's part of the culture. You get baptized, you have weddings and so forth. But Dietrich took that a bit deeper, and by the time he was age 13, he declared to his family that he wanted to be a theologian, this precocious kid. Um, so... Um, that, by way of background, is his entry into the academy, and he is 24 years old when he's completed what is essentially two dissertations and achieved a position, teaching position at the University of Berlin. 24, okay, um, two dissertations. Uh, but he was too young to be ordained in the in the Lutheran Church. He had to be 25 for that. So the man in charge of his ordination process rec uh, recommended that he see the world a little bit. He's, he's pretty young. See the world a bit. England was considered because he wanted to learn English better. They settled on the United States and particularly New York. Not because of the quality of the school, but because New York presented itself as a broader school ground for Bonhoeffer. He wanted to learn theology, he says, as it is developed in circumstances completely different from our own. So he was already planning on being in Harlem by the time he got there. So spring 1931 was the second semester of Bonhoeffer's Sloan Fellowship year at Union. Sloan, the Sloan Fellowship was a, uh, was a, was a um, fellowship, a scholarship presented to three European, three European students. Um, there was a French Sloan Fellow, there was a Swiss Sloan Fellow, and there was a German Sloan Fellow. Bonhoeffer obviously was the German one. The Sloan Fellowship recipients would typically come get a, the equivalent of an M, a Master of Divinity, which was at that time a, as a, a BD, Bachelor of Divinity, and then head back to their home country. The German Sloan Fellowship had two dissertations completed by the time he got there. He was not excited about being there trying to learn theology from people who he would really be his colleagues 
if they were good enough in his mind. Um, so it was, but, but the spring 1931 was the second semester of his Sloan fellowship year at Union. With the arrival of the spring, the influential stay in America for the 25 year old genius from Berlin was nearing its final months. Miles Horton was a friend and fellow student with Bonhoeffer that year who later recalled an uncharacteristic encounter with Bonhoeffer in the lobby of the seminary on Sunday afternoon in that spring semester. Horton saw Bonhoeffer as he was returning to the seminary from Abyssinian Baptist, this prominent black Baptist church in Harlem, not more than 45 minutes walk from Union Seminary. Bonhoeffer was a lay leader there where he and his friend Albert Franklin Fisher one in a small number of African-American students at Union that year. And indeed, I think there was only two. Um, they taught a Sunday school class to a group of boys. Horton, Miles Horton, noticed that Bonhoeffer was lingering in the lobby. And to Horton's surprise, he was quite emotional, Bonhoeffer was, which was out of character for his typically logical and unemotive temperament. He was excited to talk that day about church. Horton remembered Bonhoeffer referring to the black church as the only time he had experienced religion in the United States. In that conversation, Bonhoeffer said that he was convinced that it was only among blacks who were oppressed that there could be any real religion in this country. As Horton reflected on this encounter with Bonhoeffer years later, he said, perhaps that Sunday afternoon, I witnessed a beginning of his identification with the oppressed, which played a role in the decision that led to his death. Now, um, I would encourage, if you have the opportunity to do so, um, that you pick up an article I wrote for Christian Century, if you've not already, if you don't get the Christian Century. I wrote an article that was published um, on the cover for, of the September 23rd edition. In that article, I wrote that, I wrote that article in the week that George Floyd was murdered, and I did that to offer definition of terms that we use when we talk about racism. I, racism and white supremacy are you I, um, are interchangeable. I use them interchangeably because they're both describing the same phenomenon, but it it clarifies terms and describes what is happening in the world here and why racism, white supremacy are not prejudice and why prejudice is not xenophobia. When he's in Harlem, he encounters white supremacy as understood from the perspective of black people. This is one of the things that's very helpful and important for him. Yet he struggles with it for the entirety of his life in himself as well. So I just wanted to say that because as he encounters that Black Baptist church, he encounters a worldview that helps to set him on a trajectory against his government. The year following that conversation at Union with Bonhoeffer, Horton, Miles Horton, together with his friend Jim Dombrowski, also a friend of Bonhoeffer's at Union, went on to found the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee as a place for training in social justice work. P. 
people like Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa, Rosa Parks, Ralph Abernathy, and other significant figures of the civil rights movement received training at Highlander. Like Horton and Dombrowski, Bonhoeffer was influenced by, counter, by encounters with African-Americans, which helped place him on a trajectory that saw solidarity and suffering with suffering and oppressed people as core Christian leadership. Yet Bonhoeffer was not always so excited about his stay in New York. In, for, in fact, when he first got there, um, he didn't have a whole lot of positive things to say. But in his end of the year church summary to the Federation office, he described a course that he took with Reinhold Niebuhr that I think is telling. He says that in a lecture course by Dr. Niebuhr, once described as the country's best theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr was, if you don't know that name, um, in a lecture course by Niebuhr, the social and Christian problem was discussed in the context of modern American literature. That was extremely informative. I learned much from my own experiences in Harlem, Bonhoeffer says. So he speaks positively about the course with Niebuhr. Dombrowski talks about him being excited. These are both experiences in the second semester. First semester, when he first gets there, he's not excited at all. In fact, for Bonhoeffer, there is no theology here. This is the first semester. Although I'm basically taking classes and lectures in dogmatics, in philosophy, of religion, the impression is overwhelmingly negative. They talk a blue streak without the slightest substantive foundation, with no evidence of any criteria. The students, on average 25 to 30 years old, are completely clueless. This, this guy coming from Germany is feeling himself a bit, and he's not excited about where he's at. Yet in that spring semester, he's talking about learning from Harlem, and he's excited about that church. What? happened what is this learning that he's doing in harlem i'm all right i'm saying that that difference corresponds with a developing appreciation for social justice as a core component of following christ it's a difference that was influenced by harlem experiences that one that he describes with Miles Horton that apprehended him in an uncharacteristically passionate way. Bonhoeffer's positive description of several spring semester courses, including Niebuhr's class, his encounter with Horton, um, they may tell us something of the personal significance of that year in New York from him and his subsequent Christian witness. What was this learning he was referring to in Harlem? We may begin to discern an answer to that by paying attention to what was happening in Harlem at that time. He was studying at Union during the Harlem Renaissance at Abyssinian Baptist, during the Great Depression. That means that all of his descriptions of his involvement in African-American life, 1930-31, was occurring during this critical moment in world history and black history. He also turned 25 during that year, in February of that year. Thus, in addition to that time being and place being very influential in the course of Black history, Bonhoeffer was in Harlem experiencing that critical time while he was still young and impressionable. In New York, that Renaissance consisted of an effort to introduce, the Harlem Renaissance did, to introduce the world to a new Negro. 
Now, what does this mean? The new Negro was something very different than the old Negro. And the old Negro, we might say, is, is caricatures of black people created by white people to justify buying and selling black people and con in subsequent practices of Jim Crow segregation. These are depictions of black people that do not come from actual black life. The Harlem Renaissance, as this slide depicts here, this is a painting from Aaron Douglas, the artist I told you I studied. This is one of four paintings that are in the Harlem branch of the New York Library, hanging there as in uh, what he describes as this homage to black life, the Negro um, from um, slavery to freedom. Here in the far left-hand corner, a figure is depicted in the grips of deadly white supremacy, depicted as a phantom and deadly vapors. This, it, it's, the death grips are about to grasp him or he is in the death grips. It's, it's death dealing. Over here on the right, he's fleeing those death grips on a cogwheel, symbol of industry. This is during industrialization. They're going up north for jobs. The, in the south, there were um, sharecropping and debt peonage. If you don't know, sharecropping um, is what happens after slavery when you've got acres and acres of land owned by people who don't know how to work it because they've had enslaved people working it. They own land, but no skills, farming skills. Then you had um, skilled labor with no property. They worked out an agreement, or at least white people um, made an agreement with the free labor. You can work our property, you can rent the equipment and borrow the seeds and the fertilizer, all the stuff for farming. And when the crop comes due, you just pay us what you just pay us what you owe us, which is basically a harvest. There were no laws in the South that white people were bound to respect when it comes to black life. So black people were subject to the benevolence of the white landowners, and they were somehow often short, somehow often regularly, I should say somehow regularly short during the harvest. And so what this created was a sense, uh, was this really another page, another chapter in the story of slavery, poverty for these sharecroppers constantly. World War I hits 1914, Black people are enabled to leave and go work in these factories because people who would normally work the factories are um, immigrants and they're staying at home fighting in the war or being, or being pulled into the war. So the great migration here is depicted as a move up north on the industrial cogwheel. And then they make it to the north here in this Saxophone is an image of culture and, and freedom, the hands raised. Um, and the, in the distance is the Statue of Liberty depicting the more the way that this is moving or where this is going. So that's the Harlem Renaissance. And I'm, I'm running out of time here. Let me move here, move a little faster. 
Um, so Bonhoeffer heads into, he's in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance, but there's something else that's important to know. By the time that Bonhoeffer gets there, these two dissertations, really a doctoral dissertation and what they, what the Germans call a habilitation, um, are all engaging this, what, what he would call a Christian concept of personhood, which is foundational for his understanding of, um, for his doctrine of the church, and which is even that is centrally located on an understanding of Jesus. So he's, he's really known for what we describe um, as, for what he described as Christ as Stelfertreton, Christ as vicarious representation for our humanity. In short, when we in our sin and shame cannot stand before God, Christ stands in for us, for us, becoming vicarious representation for all of humankind. And it's not in a spiritual sense, primarily spiritual sense. This is literal for Bonhoeffer. Christ stands in for us before God and before us as well in all of our neighborly encounters. Because Christ is our stand-in. Every time you meet a person, you have an encounter with Christ. In a real, in a very real sense, Christ is that um, the ultimate you when you encounter another. And there are many reasons, many implications for this. Um, but when so when he heads into Harlem, having these encounters with others, he pays he plays a role of learner, not teacher. He's encountering the world from their expense, from their experience, entering into that context, listening as well as teaching Sunday school for boys and teaching Bible study in a mid uh, a midweek class to women at the church, standing in. And he's hearing things like this from Powell, Powell Sr. driving his very nice car down what is now Lenox Avenue in Harlem during the Great Depression, looks out of his window and he sees black people suffering. As, as the saying goes, as an adage in African-American, um, African-Americans say that when white America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia. We feel it much more so. And he's seeing all of the suffering. And he says, God, why don't you do something? And a couple of days later, he says he's asleep. And as he's sleeping, he hears, Adam, why don't you do something? Takes this as a charge to do something about it. And as any good pastor would do, um, he preaches a sermon series in response to the call to get busy doing something. And this sermon in the sermon series is based on Mark, uh, Matthew um, 25. Um, I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. Thirsty, you gave me something to drink. The one sermon is called The Hungry God. The other one is Naked God. This is a clip from The Hungry God. We clothe God by clothing men and women. Jesus interpreted this as command to clothe men and women when they are naked. When you give men and women um, coats, shoes, and dresses, you're giving clothes to God. If the Bible does not mean this, it does not mean anything. 
I'll stop there. The rest of it you can see if you've not already read it. What I've said about Stolfertreitung may sound familiar when you're hearing this clip from Powell. That your encounter with your neighbor is an encounter with the incarnate God. Bonhoeffer is hearing this kind of language there at Abyssinian Baptist. Uh, and he is teaching there and attending on a regular basis. Yet Christianity the Abyssinian um, did more than just address the problems of poverty. Christianity, Christianity at Abyssinian was representation of a God in Christ who suffers with us, not one who's risen with all power, not one who meets your faith and makes your life perfect, but one who recognizes the suffering and is liberator and is deliverer, deliverer in addition to, I mean, uh, initially as co-sufferer. Christ is there with you on the cross. The connection made to Christ is connection in suffering, not in power. That's a very important distinction. Yet he's also encountering the Harlem Renaissance. So he's encountering this Christ at Abyssinian that's reflected in the work of the Harlem Renaissance, because the Harlem Renaissance artists and intellectuals are depicting this kind of engagement with Christ. What is this Christ that they're depicting? Well, if black people are caricatured as immoral. The, the old Negro was immoral, lazy, violent, uh, dumb, somehow deserving of the situation that they are in when they're hung, when they're in the noose. So the lynch law was what blacks were leaving from the South. Um, why blacks were leaving from the South is really refugees from terror in addition to poverty. The depictions of black people made sense in a white racist, racist world for that suffering. The same that happens on a regular basis today. After a black person is murdered, there is something drudged up about the past or about their being to correspond with, or actually to give reason to what your eyes have witnessed. This is fiction about black life to justify their horrible existence. But if the connection that black people make with Christ is in suffering and black people on the cross with Christ, it's the corresponding um, knowledge that we know of Jesus on that cross that gives us this understanding of black suffering, innocent, um, important, child of God. This is the black person on the cross. This is black Christ. And Bonhoeffer is looking at society from this perspective. Um, he talks about the veiled corner, using language that Du Bois makes mention of. And I have this quote here from Du Bois, so you'll understand 
when uh, the language of the veil is an image that Du Bois is using. I have seen the human drama from a veiled corner where all the outer tragedy and comedy have been reproduced by, have reproduced themselves in a microcosm from within. From this inner torment of souls, the human scene without has interpreted itself into me, to me in unusual and even illuminating ways. The veiled corner. This is the perspective that black people have on a society where they exist but are not welcomed within, not part of. Okay. Bonhoeffer says this in a letter at the end. Letter home. Here one gets to see something of the real face of America, something that is hidden behind the veil of words in the American Constitution saying that all men are created equal. These are Bonhoeffer's words. Um, I think I've gone, I'm going a little bit over my time. I've gone over my time already. I wanted to close up by then. But let me just say here that um, he's also, this is all evidence of what he's hearing. He's talking about black life there. These are his words talking about uh, the a distinction between two black leaders, prominent black leaders, an argument that he's aware of that's speaking of black um, renewal of black self. Um, and then he mentions this poem by name, County Cullen's The Black Christ, a fascinating poem about a lynching. And in this poem, there's a pious black woman, pious black mother, She's got two sons. The youngest ends up being lynched. And the oldest, who is in a role, functions in a role like Job's accuser, Job's accusers, angry at mom, who is still holding to her faith while her son is being lynched. We have that narrative about us today, black mothers constantly losing their children to white supremacy. And this mom kneels and prays, and the older son, seeing his mother in prayer, call on him now. I'm mocked and try your faith against this deed while I with intent equally as sane, searching a motive for this pain will hold a little stone on high and seek of it a reason why, which stone or God will first reply. What has he done for you who spent a bleeding life for his content? Or is white Christ too also distraught by these dark skins his father wrought? White Christ, is he not also upset or distraught by the black people that his dad has made? And the next morning, the son who was lynched walks back through the front door and he recognizes, oh, my gosh. He's not with the lynchers. He's with us. Oh, form immaculately born, betrayed a thousand times each morning, as many times each night denied, surrendered, tortured, crucified. This is the poem that he's talking about. Black Christ, identifying with that family and suffering. He mentions it by name, Bonhoeffer does. Later, in 1939, when he does a full-on essay on Christianity in the United States called Protestantism Without Reformation, after a second trip that only lasted a few weeks. So all of that to say, when he, um, this is that poem, uh, when he gets back to the, back to Germany, it's this kind of content that shapes his understanding of Christianity. He goes from having developed the concept as a theologian, really in his two dissertations, to being concerned about discipleship and taking his faith seriously and pushing back against white supremacy. Yet he struggles with this for the rest of his life. 
even internally. I'll stop there and we can have further conversation. Uh, let me, I should probably describe to you this painting that you're seeing. This is Aaron Douglas again. This is the description, or I should say the, the, the understanding of Christ that Bonhoeffer picks up on. Aaron Douglas is painting the crucifixion. Now, let me say this. When I ask this question, people are drawn into what's happening. They're, they're wondering what's happening here. But I say, where is Jesus? It's typical that you might think, I mean, you may think yeah, it's a cross. It's a guy carrying a cross, right? Jesus crucified. But no, it's not Jesus. Here at the fifth station of the cross, when Jesus could not carry the cross any longer, Simon from Cyrene, Cyrene, North Africa, Africa, black people. I grew up knowing this tradition that when Christ could no longer carry the cross, and cross, and this is Christ here. When Christ could no longer carry the cross, Simon carried the cross for him. When black people, when Simon's black body touched that black cross with Christ, black people picked up the suffering. I knew this growing up. Now, um, what does it say about the people who nailed Jesus to the cross? What does it say about the people who are part? I should say, that's not the question I meant to ask. The question I meant to ask is, what does this say about the people who contribute to or cause black suffering with this understanding of black suffering? And that's the point. Now I'll stop and let's talk. That was a that was uh, about ten minutes longer than I anticipated. Right. Apologies. No, that's just fine. Thanks for that. That was fantastic. So thank you for both writing a, a powerful book and and uh, and a really powerful presentation. I have a number of questions. I uh, we spoke before the presentation about uh, what inspired you to write the book, and I'm also curious about the reaction you got to the book or continue to get to the book. But before I get even to those questions and before I get even to the content of the book itself, I was wondering if you could say a few words about the title and why you chose Black Jesus rather than Black Christ, if there's any significance there. Funny story about that title. Um, I actually didn't like the title initially when um, the publisher proposed it. He's a bit like, if you know the world of college basketball, Bobby Knight, who coached at Indiana and was really, really, really loud and um, kind of having his way and so forth. Well, my publisher was like the Bobby Knight of publishing. And he demanded that he gets to give the book a title. It was in my contract. When he proposed the title, um, if you don't know, if you know the black theologian, James Cone, who was a friend of mine, somebody that I, um, I had a great deal of respect for, a mentor from a distance. I said, what do you think, Dr. Cone, of this book? Because Cone liked Bonhoeffer a lot, too. And he was really skeptical about it. My mentor loved the title. Glenn did. He said, you're not saying that he, he had the black Christ. You're saying he had a black Christ. Okay, so there's that. And the, and the title grew on me. It had to grow on me. 
Initially, I wanted to say Black Bonhoeffer. Hmm. I wanted to call it Black Bonhoeffer. I wanted to I wanted to describe a blackening that happened for him because of a transition in his the in his way of seeing the world and his Christianity. Um, but I didn't have a chance against that Bobby Knight publisher. Um, so, so the, um, so Bonhoeffer's black Jesus, um, Kelly, not Kelly Brown Douglas, Jackie Grant is a black woman, theologian, black woman, theological ethicist who makes a distinction between white women's Christ, which we might say is a formal doctrinal based high church less empath less um day-to-day concrete encounter with others focused less less of a at a guttural level worship of christ or worship of jesus than a black woman's jesus the title of her book is called white woman's christ black woman's jesus Hmm. okay to say Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus is to speak to the day-to-day encounter mm-hmm. with Jesus of Black people. Not in a formal sense, but in a very informal sense of he knows me. Jesus then being the more familial, familiar yeah intimate term and Christ being more of a, a separate or kind of abstract concept. Yeah. Formal wow. religion versus family. Mm-hmm. Versus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Familial. Right. And um, black Jesus um, as, as familiar familial in a black world Mm -hmm. suffering is the point of contact that black people make with jesus not in the halls of power as if to say you don't know him if you think he was born in caesar's house Mm. Uh Mm. because he's with us as howard thurman says if jesus was pushed into a ditch by the Romans, because he was a poor Jew in a colonized state, he would have just been another Jew in a ditch. Much the same way that black people lynched as just another black person, and they don't use the word black person, in a noose or in a ditch. That's Jesus. <laughs> wow. Is that the perspective of the veiled corner? Is that what uh, people outside the veil can't see? Yes. People, people carrying on their day-to-day yeah. Don't have the per. They don't have the view from the balcony. Uh-huh. They they can't see the web of systems and structures that they inhabit on a daily basis. Yeah, that are all woven together by an ideology that keeps me an insider outsider. Because mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a part of the country, but I'm an outsider to the country as well. I should say this as this is an important perspective to have. One of the things about white supremacy um, as a Western world understanding of human difference, um, this this is helpful uh, to know about how the Germans practiced white supremacy that is a part of our understanding of it as well. They had colonies in Africa, 
much the same. The United States only had one colony, Liberia. It was colonized. We don't talk about it in that way. <laughs> um, but um, the Germans had several colonies. And when it came to Hitler's Germany, um, there weren't a whole lot of black people in Germany. But the black people were there. They were, they were, they were somewhat comfortable with pure blood black people from Africa especially if they're from the colonies because that depicted German power mm -hmm. and they didn't, they were not claiming citizenship. They weren't claiming this is our space, but Jewish people were mm. Jewish people had citizenship. They had claims on the space that belonged to the Aryan. Therefore, they were a threat. But black people, few in numbers, pure blood from the colonies, represented German strength, might, and power. The same thing here in the United States. Whose land and country is this? Oh, um, if you make protest about your treatment here and demand co-humanity, co-citizenship, that tends to be a problem. Hmm. Wear that lapel pin and don't complain or get out. <laughs> wow. Or go home. Yeah, we hear that rhetoric. Go politically. home. Get out yeah. of here. Yeah. Love it or it's leave the it. Same, the same sentiment. <laughs> but if I, if, if I am white, protest all you want. Of course, demand your rights and your citizenry. Wear a lapel pin or not. Put your hand over your heart or not. Whatever. Hmm. So the, 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 the practice is of domination and know your place, be grateful or get out. And that perspective of the veiled corner in Harlem significantly transformed how Bonhoeffer thought about the Jewish community in Germany. Is that you'd make that connection? Yeah, I would make that connection. I, I certainly would. Right when he gets back in 1931, he writes a catechism with a Jewish friend, Franz Hildebrand. It was catechism. You see it immediately. Uh huh. Um, he right when, before he leaves, he gives this sermon. I, actually, he gave a couple of set of sermons to an expatriate congregation of Germans in Barcelona, Spain, where he was pastoring before he came back to write his second mm -hmm. dissertation. Uh, one of them, um, one of those sermons, he's talking about how war could be sanctified, murder could mm -hmm. be justified for the sake of my people. Okay, that's one thing. In the catechism, right away when he gets back, he says the Christian only prays to God for peace, not war. Huge. That's a very different tone, Dietrich. <laughs> yeah, so that's something a very different tone, happened, right? Yeah, that's huge. Something significant happened. Right yeah. away, he says. You do not pray for war, and there is no way to justify it. Christians must pursue peace wow. only. And the second thing he says is that God has made from one blood all the nations that dwell on the earth. That's a cat. That is a that that's a that's um scripture that abolitionists used, and Du Bois was using it, much like uh -huh. the Lambs of the Veiled Corner. So um. And other writers of the Harlem Renaissance, the other thing he says is that even though, and I'm paraphrasing, Christians may be uncomfortable with politics, engaging politically, there may come a time when Christians must act politically. 
for the sake of loving your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Must engage the political structures for the sake of your neighbor. Yeah, that is not German. And is that the the spoke in the wheel language? You follow, you know exactly where that's going. So this is 1931. Yeah. By 1933, in that essay, The Church and the Jewish Question, mm -hmm. he's making that exact claim. Yeah. Must seize the wheel of the political system, specifically yeah. for justice sake. Yeah, that's spoken the wheel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or, or, the, or the, the actual phrasing is to throw its, the church should throw itself into the spokes of the wheel. Fall yeah. into the spokes of the wheel, yeah. But somehow uh, be a disruptive agent in a political process that's already on this trajectory. Because exactly, yeah, yeah. Because of what it's doing uh, to and direct harm of its citizens, on one hand, or not doing enough of and helping to stop harm against its citizens. Mm -hmm. In and both situations, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, and that strikes me as a very pastoral response, not necessarily an academic theological response. And so it sounds like in, in Harlem, Bonhoeffer learned to be a, a theologian in a, a very pastoral context, in the, in the care for the community and the harm that's being inflicted on neighbors. Yes. There was a situation that happened while he was there that garnered international publicity. And that's the situation of the Scottsboro Nine. Hmm. Scott Scottsboro uh, boys. It was hugely important for him. It was big in the country at that time, and and a big topic there in Harlem, where these boys really were um, hitchhiking on a train um, in Alabama, um, and they began. They became accused. It turned to frustration over them hitchhiking to accusations of raping a white woman. They got arrested and accused of rape, and they were rushed through trial, hastily convicted. It was a clear sham. Bonhoeffer wrote back to Germany asking for his church to also raise their voice in protest, and they said, that's a political issue. We don't get, we don't get engaged in that. It's not the opposite. And he was still writing about that wow. in the book that he was still concerned about that, that book that was published after he was dead after he was killed, um, ethics. Ethics, yeah. Yeah, he still, he mentioned it in there. He was still on his mind. Yeah. And that wasn't the last time a pastor's been accused of being too political for the church. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> it sure wasn't. Thanks to Dr. Reggie Williams for joining us at this forum. You can find a link to his book, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, in the show notes on this episode, along with links to more of his work. Thanks as well to Pastor Mark Griffith and St. Luke's Lutheran for co-hosting this forum with us. Learn more about upcoming forums at queenannelutheran.org. Until next time, I'm Pastor Dan Peterson. Thanks for listening to God for Grownups.